folks. I'm Katie. I'm Vinny. This is Learn, Learn Real, Real Good. Good. I can't believe we're at the end of a season. It's the final episode of a new season. It's been exciting. I, I've learned so much. <laughs> I know that's the point, but it uh, delights me every time. Do you remember, uh, what are some th- favorite things you've learned from this season? <laughs> Let's not say favorites. They're all our favorites. Yeah. What about some of the facts? Any facts you remember from facts. previous episodes? I'm such a butterfly. I, it goes <laughs> in one ear and out the other. It'll come up. Like, I remember I my facts more than I remember the facts that I heard, just because I had to dump them, really lodge them in my memory. That's okay. So well, the, what's one of those? I mean, the big one is... What's the big one, is, yeah. Well, for me, it was the <laughs> the car one. It was really surprising. Uh, mm. And we were just listening it to the other day, and I was like, man, cars that are designed right. by men sexist for men. Cars. You're putting me in a sour mood again, mentioning yeah. the sexist Sorry, cars. I shouldn't have brought up the fact. But I mean, it's so... <laughs> I mean, it's always a constant reminder that uh, even though we the idea is that science is agnostic to these things... Mm. It's run by people, and people have those biases. Uh, we need to get rid of the people. That's we need to saying. get rid of the people. Yeah, <laughs> finally, a, AI can take over. <laughs> well, but it's happening AI, anyway. The AI has Made its own bias. People? Made by of people. Course. So of how course. else could it not? The, the circle continues. Absolutely. I uh, uh, one fact I remember, and I think this is from previous seasons. Yeah. Maybe our favorite learners or our biggest learner fans will remember the episode. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned uh, to give scale to the age of the rings of Saturn. Yeah. You meant, oh no, how the age of sharks. You said sharks evolved before the rings of Saturn formed. And that Correct. sticks in my brain. Yeah. And I bring it up every year in my class because when we talk about sort of uh, evolution of different vertebrate groups, yeah. being like, to give you an idea of how long ago this was, when the sharks were looking up at the sky at Saturn, they couldn't see the rings. Because they didn't have telescopes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know they wouldn't be able to see it anyway. Well, you know what? This isn't... Even if they did, though. What? They wouldn't be able to see it. Yeah, because their eyes are no good. Because their eyes are... Black <laughs> eyes, like, like a doll's eyes. eyes. Yeah. Okay, well, this isn't a show about sharks. No. It's a show about science yeah, and comedy. Yeah, having a fun time. Yeah, well, the beginning of the show, which we finished, phase one complete, <laughs> for the first time for the last time of the season. I like that you like to announce it. Yeah, you have good. to announce segments. Isn't yeah. that how segments work? Well, you don't say complete, like you're some robot checking off a list. That's 100% how I run my life. I have a list of tasks <laughs> and I put a check mark beside them as they're done. Task one complete of right. show 40. And... Now we enter phase two. Uh, fact time. Fact, fact sharing. sharing. And I'm very... I'm so excited facts, about my facts. Facts, facts, Thank you for that. Can I Can I go? You want to go for it. You're raring. Buzzing. Yeah. Well... Full, full disclosure, yeah. I realized today that I hadn't flagged a fact. I'm oh, always just okay. earmarking facts I find interesting sure. for the podcast. And then I realized this afternoon, I was like, oh, I hadn't really learned a fact yet yeah, for sure. today's recording. And then this one fell in my lap and blew my mind. We're talking about hippos. Vinny, when I say hippo, what Hippos do you think blew of? Your mind. Yeah, when you think of a hippo, tell well, describe they're dangerous. Some they're big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, if if I had never seen a hippo before and someone had described it to me, I would think they were making up an animal. Kind of like elephants and rhinos. Yeah, like they're those, very different. Those three, those are the three animals that I think are like fictional. I've seen though. I've seen all three of them. Yeah. Uh, and I don't believe that they're not like some animatronic. You don't believe. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure they're not made up. Well, we'll circle back to hippos are weird. Yeah. And that there's not a lot of other things that yeah, look like them. They're what big. Else? They live yeah. in water. They're, yeah. they're famous for being incredibly territorial and aggressive. Yes. Um, and I love watching videos when someone throws like a big watermelon in a hippo mouth. <laughs> Those are always fun. Like hungry, hungry hippos. Like the hungry, hungry hippos. Yeah. Well, what about them? What about their mouth do you think is super terrifying? Well, it's just that it's a huge maw. It's it just, is. It opens up very wide. It does. Yeah. All these all these attributes are going to come into this okay. story. And they also have those giant, what are canine teeth? Right, those big Tusks. tusky teeth. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is a story about how hippos suck at chewing. Okay. Oh, they suck <laughs> at chewing. Okay. So hippos are primarily herbivorous. Okay. And do you know anything about the teeth of an herbivore or what they do mostly yeah, to chew? Yeah, they don't have like sharp ends. They're more grindy to like wear uh-huh. down the, the herb rather than tearing. <laughs> yeah. So incisors tend to be either lost or much smaller, right? Okay. If you think of the skull, the skull of a, a lot of herbivore, herbivore mammals. Mm-hmm. And it's all about 
the molars right grindy molars and if grind. you could see the dance that katie's doing right now <laughs> the, the she's lateral... got her hand she's got her hands out like two snakes is... and her head is going side to side like like some kind of like pirate ship <laughs> ro- uh, theme park ride this is how i dance though ironically yeah. so my natural dance move like this yes is how they chew or herbivore or... all right so like swinging side to side their teeth okay Hippos suck at chewing. Now, how did these scientists sort of stumble into this? Well, there was a previous study done about 15 years ago that looked at 200 different mammal species and looked at their feces, actually. This isn't the study I'm talking about today. Species, species. Species, species. 200 species, species. It's five times fast or once. And they looked, they compared the size of the food coming out to the size of the particles of the food going okay, in to yeah. see, like, who are the best chewers. Yeah, who are the best chewers? This is a question everybody needs to know. <laughs> well, I only looked at the worst chewers. So hippos <laughs> suck at chewing. Okay, yes. Like, the size of the particle going in, same as coming out, and wow. it just sort of stood out to them. So what they did was they looked at a bunch of uh, skulls yep. and sort of made some observations about the teeth. And their initial hypothesis that it was those tusks, which are adapted canine teeth, were getting in the way of that lateral movement okay. to grind the food. But it's actually not. It has little to do with them. It's all about their incisors. So they have not lost their incisors compared to a lot of herbivores. But theirs interlock. So when they close their mouth, they can't move side to side. side. Oh, it's like like a... Lock. Yeah, like teeth. Yes. I was going to say like teeth of a gear, but obviously just teeth. I mean, look up, look a picture uh, of a, look a picture, look up a picture of a hippo's uh, skull if you want to. It looks really neat. I'll, I'll show Vinny after. So yeah, they can't do that lateral moving when their mouth is closed. So uh-huh. they have to rely on having a huge gape to get food in, in. and they swallow a lot of food right. whole. And that has a lot of cool consequences. Okay. So first of all, why do they have these big teeth? Well, they use them for in mating displays. They use them in defense because uh-huh. they are very territorial. territorial. Um, but it comes at a cost of food processing. So if they can't chew their food, that mm. means the food has to sit in their digestive right. system way longer, right? Because the smaller, back to my dance move, mm-hmm. the smaller we grind our food mechanically in our mouth, the easier it is to chemically break right. down. So you're swallowing these big old chunks. takes forever. So that means their intake of food is much slower mm. and their overall sort of s- speed of energy processing is slower. And they inferred that this may be why hippos are stuck in the water, right? They kind of live this amphibious life, right? They're half in land, half in water. That's not a very common lifestyle of many mammals. But because of their slow intake of food, that kind of makes them crappy predators in a high-speed environment like on land. So they're thinking that the reason why they're still in an amphibious environment is that they couldn't compete with the other land things. They're too slow at processing food because they can't chew. If you think of other herbivores that live in those, they're like fast runners. 100%. Hippos, famously not. (laughs) Well, they don't need to be in water. Who's going to eat you there? A, a, a crocodile? Get lost. You're not going to stand a chance. And it's easier to be big in water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that all adds up. Anyway, I thought it was super fascinating. That's amazing. Yeah. All because of their teeth, probably. Well, it's funny because, like, again, we teach about vertebrate evolution. So yeah. evolution of things with uh, backbones, for, for, for short. It all has a lot of the major steps are acquisition of a wider range of food. Like, what you can eat has a huge implications mm. on how quickly you change and how much you diversify. It all comes down to food access. It all comes down to our mouth bones. <laughs> well, the more food you eat, the more energy you take in, the more babies you can have, the more copies of your gene you put on. Like there's it, it, there's it big ramifications, man. Up, man. Anyway, hippos. Am hippos. I right? This is very cool. Final hippo fact. Yes. Oh. As a child, I wasn't allowed the game Hungry Hungry Hippos yes. because if you've ever seen this game <laughs> or heard it rather, it is a parent's nightmare. It is. So loud. Yeah. But I found a... A hungry hungry hippo game at like a church tea or something okay and for like a dollar and i was able to buy one yes. but uh it went missing mysteriously shortly, <laughs> shortly after after yeah you got one game in yeah and immediately it was yeah it just disappeared, disappeared. Uh, yeah, yeah. despite their bad chewing anyway that's it for my Amazing. fact well great I yeah love it. yeah Share Very a fact, cool. Vinny. Share a fact. Well, I had, I have, so I made, <laughs> because we do this podcast, I maintain like a little document. Sure. I stockpile facts. Yeah, yeah. So I have like a few ready to go. Okay. But 
what I've been reading about lately is because recently the Nobel Prize in Physics yep. was given out. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know what this field was. It's called attosecond physics. Oh. And so three people won the prize, Anne Lullier, Pierre Agostini, and Ferenc Krauss. Okay. Uh, the three of them won the Nobel Prize in Physics here in 2023 for attosecond lasers. Oh, okay. wow. Now, one... Do you know what an attosecond is? I barely understand laser. Okay. <laughs> I know it's an acronym. It is an acronym. I know to not put them in people's eyes. Yes. All of those things are good to know. Yeah. So, <laughs> attosecond physics. Well, well, do you know what a second is? Uh, a measurement of time. Yeah. All right. So Nailed it. An atto, I could be a physicist. An attosecond is like a way of like subdividing the second, okay. right? Like milli, uh-huh. right? One millisecond uh-huh. means? Yeah. What does it mean? A thousandth of a second. A thousandth yeah. of a second, right? And then you go the other way, a kilo. Kilo, uh-huh, uh-huh. like a kilometer is a thousand of them. Uh-huh. And so we have an attosecond is a very small uh-huh. fraction of a second. It is a billionth of a billionth of a second. Interesting. And the analogy they have been using to kind of describe how small that is, there are as many seconds in the age of the universe... As there are attoseconds in one second. Whoa. Okay. okay. So that's the ratio. Right. The scale is if one second was the entirety age of the universe, then one attosecond would just be one second in our world. Okay. Very, very small. Huge. Okay. Yeah, and so what? how this all started is that Anne Lullier, uh, Dr. Anne Lullier, uh, one uh, did some experiments by shining lights through some uh, lasers through noble gla- gases. Mm-hmm. So by shining the light laser through noble gases, it would excite the noble gases. The electrons would get all jiggly and dance around. And then mm-hmm. when the laser went away, they would be like, "Oh, we can relax again," and they drop back down on energy level, and light would come out. Mm. Okay, and this pulse of light uh, would last six hundred and fifty attoseconds. And it was very, very short. At that time, we we couldn't generate anything that was that small in a controlled way. Because if you, like, think about, like, your light switch. Mm-hmm. How fast can you turn on and off that light switch? Pretty good at that. You're pretty good at that, it's true. But it's probably not more than, like, maybe on the millisecond scale. Like, hundreds of milliseconds. Well, let's get my probably. stopwatch. Can an iPhone measure attoseconds? <laughs> not really. Mm. So, to generate, to be able to controllably and reliably generate something on that scale and something that small is an amazing tool because you can use that pulse of light to do measurements on Mm. things because if you think about it you can't measure anything smaller than the size of your ruler Hmm. right Mm -hmm. so if you only have a meter stick and it's measured at one meter you're trying to measure something that's a centimeter you're going to get a terrible guess until you find a way to like put marks on your meter sick that measures centimeters or millimeters. Mm. So having something that can be 650 attoseconds means that now you can measure things that are that small. Hmm. Uh, And so then Pierre Agostini and uh, Dr. Pierre Agostini and Dr. Frank Krauss. Let's be formal. uh, Let's be formal. They uh, were able to, Pierre Agostini uh, was trying to make a series of pulses, Ah. whereas Krauss was trying to make a single pulse. And they were able to do that. Hmm. And so now you have these controlled, like, repeatable pulses that are very short. Or a single pulse that lasts a very short amount of time. And it's opened up a whole new world in physics, in Mm. measurement. Because now that's the kind of scale that electrons exist at. And so you can start measuring, like, how electrons behave and molecule structures. Hmm. And so... Many years ago, like, so uh, Dr. Lullier's work was done in, like, the late 80s. Oh, wow. And only now, like, like 30, 35 years later, do we have access to be, like, be able to use this stuff. Because as, as so much science, certainly in physics, all of these, like, there's tons of experiments that get done. And it's like, what if we did this? Hmm. Hey, here's a cool result. And then we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. But years later, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I need a way to measure something in attoseconds. Wait a minute. Hey, there's these papers that say... Here, you can generate these things. Now we can use them. And so their, their, the works in their physics has really opened up a whole new way of looking at the universe. Hmm. And so that's how they were awarded the Nobel Prize in physics. I wonder, do you know offhand what would take one autosecond? What would take one autosecond? Yeah, what, what event? What thing? Wow. I mean, 
we're talking about real like subatomic <laughs> stuff here, like on the or atomic and molecular level. Ooh. So like physical changes between molecules of like how long it takes for one molecule to bind with another molecule. Well, I know one thing that took ten attoseconds. Yeah, to, uh, attoseconds. Attoseconds. What took ten? And that's that closest to one we can get. Ten. Sure. How quickly my mother took away hungry, hungry. Hippos. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, there you go. Wow, good job, lasers. Good job, scientists. Yeah. And all the scientists who won Nobel Prizes and non-scientists who won Nobel Prizes. In economics. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah. Well, that's there enough. You go. Those very are facts. Cool facts. Yeah. Very cool facts. It's time for more facts from our guest. I love our guest. Who I have, have a, the honor of introducing. In. Uh, our guest this week is Jonas Velsch. Uh, Jonas is currently in his fourth and final year. He's confident about that. As a PhD in electrical engineering at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, working on microfabricated ultrasound transducers. Up your alley, Vinny. Mm -hmm. Previously, he studied aerospace engineering in his bachelor's and master's at the University Stuttgart in Germany. Jonas loves hiking, traveling, and is especially passionate about all things aerospace which is astonishing given his first flight was only a semester prior to finishing his undergrad in the subject. And currently he's flying back and forth from Germany. So racking up those miles, please join me in welcoming Jonas to the show. Jonas, come on down. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Hey, thanks for joining us, Jonas. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Now, in your three-minute thesis video, you give a very <laughs> good story about this connection between hydrogen fuel and the sensors you're developing. Mm. Do you want to maybe put it in that framework of summarizing what is the challenge with hydrogen fuel, and then we'll move into your fancy, dancy transducers? I can do that, of course. Um, but I want to give the first word of uh, caution on this. Uh, you know it's a three-minute thesis, so there's only so much you're allowed to tell. <laughs> and because you want to win this thing, you try to spin a compelling story out of it because these sensors yes. are used for much more than just this but yeah i'll give you a bit of an overview so if you look at hydrogen it is going to be the fuel of the future for aircraft because the only way we can avoid really putting a lot of harmful chemicals into the upper atmosphere is by burning hydrogen and therefore creating water which probably has its own problems but it certainly seems a lot better than whatever else is coming out at the end right now so <laughs> The problem with hydrogen is that hydrogen is by far the smallest molecule. So there's actually to this day, no way to really store hydrogen. We can keep it in tanks for a couple of hours, sometimes days, very rarely weeks, but usually hydrogen starts escaping through the smallest cracks that it finds. Not just that, hydrogen is very, very corrosive to most metals. Um, it, it really corrodes the surface by um, by effect uh, where the hydrogen integrates into the uh, into the metal and then therefore makes it brittle. So the solution to this because of the corrosion is that we want to try to use carbon composites for uh, so carbon fiber reinforced composites, plastics for the storage, especially in aircraft, because they need to be light, they need to be hard mm -hmm. and preferably not waste away after some time. The problem with these is that you can imagine with the resin and the fibers that we have in these, they are not particularly airtight. So even the smallest cracks that form in this will actually lead to hydrogen escaping and escaping quite the rate. So the actual problem is not what you think of, that the hydrogen will escape and we go boom, because hydrogen actually doesn't really explode that easily. <laughs> we all know the Hindenburg pictures, but it's not as bad as you think it is. The problem is actually that it just escapes and the tank's empty. With an aircraft, you can't just run to the next gas station. <laughs> you do need to land at some point, right? If you're over the Atlantic, if you don't find Atlantis all of a sudden, it might get a bit difficult. <laughs> so what we are trying to do is trying to detect these micro cracks when they are happening and trying to forecast where it becomes problematic. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing is in highly, highly stiff materials like carbon fiber composites, those micro cracks forming send out ultrasonic signals. You can think of it like a, like a creaking old staircase that mm -hmm. you walk up. It cracks, you can hear it, but really it's not unstable. It's just cracking a little bit, it's still holding together. But in the hydrogen tank, those cracks are already a problem. Mm. So if you can detect those ultrasonic signals and you can locate them, you can actually forecast how long the tank will hold. Wow. So the problem now is you can imagine that these signals are very, very, very tiny. Mm -hmm. And because we're again in aerospace, it needs to be very, very light. 
So what our lab has developed, well, actually we didn't develop it, we're just using it for it, but it's basically a very, very tiny drum uh, or thousands of those drums connected in parallel, which then the membrane with the incoming vibration will start to move because we have a electrode in the membrane and in the bottom and a void in between, you can see the difference of that capacitance that it creates. Mm. And uh, if you measure that difference, you can actually measure the incoming signal. If you have enough sensors all over your aircraft, you can detect that wow. and you can locate it. Um, just to give you an idea of what size we're talking, um, each chip that we're using has uh, several sensors. Each sensor has about a thousand cells that have these tight that are these tiny drums and each drum is about four to 10 times, depending on the frequency, the size of your red blood cells. Wow. Okay. Wow. So we're talking very, 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 very tiny, right? Must be challenging to manufacture those. That is the microfabrication part of the thesis. It has pretty much been the bane of my existence for the right. Time. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say that seems tough. Yeah, engineering is so far from my brain. No one really mm -hmm. close to me was in engineering, so I, I really don't. I have no idea what you guys do. It, it always looked hard. Um, <laughs> so, what as the engineer in this story? What are you? doing are you controlling the robot that's fabricating are you designing it and pressing a button on the 3d printer and crossing your fingers <laughs> like what is your part in that puzzle would that be nice no uh, <laughs> i am so as you mentioned earlier I, I did start out as an aerospace engineer i was focused on materials so i was focused or i'm still focused on composite materials how to manufacture and use them and on space design satellites hmm. space stations things like this then I switched to the dark side, and now I'm an electrical and computer engineering <laughs> engineer. Um, and I had to, it, it was quite the learning, the steep learning curve, but oh, it actually wow. worked quite well. So what I'm actually doing is that I am designing the sensors, I'm completely fabricating them, and then I will test them. Amazing. So I run through wow. the entire stage myself. That's Holy. it's one of the benefits our lab has at UBC is that we, we never give anything out of hand, which makes huh. the process very, very fast and allows me and my thesis to kind of work a bit like a startup we yeah. move fast and break some things on the way <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible yeah and so you, basically you're making these like like almost like little doctor's stethoscopes <laughs> like these tiny tiny Pretty like much. a lot of them that are working together to generate what must be an incredibly sensitive signal yes to, to detect it is. And so then uh, the, the goal is to, you have multiple, I'm imagining, you have multiple located in well-specified areas, and then you can detect like the time of travel between the signals to locate, exactly. triangulate where the signal is coming from. Yes, exactly. So um, we, what we created in the end basically is, is a kind of sticker. Uh, it's, a, it's a flexible sticker that has these sensors on it. Wow. And we stick them in... in in, in specific areas that we planned before. So if we have something like just a tube, uh, we'll place them in a very regular pattern with regular spacing. Spacing can be quite large, actually mm -hmm. up to a meter is still okay. fine for us. Um, but if we get into, into areas where we have curves or very intricate like valves and pipes connecting and whatever else you have in a tank specifically, you will start increasing the density of those sensors just to be able to detect it. Because the problem is, it's one of additional challenge. Carbon fiber is not a homogenous material. Uh. So if you have, for example, an aluminum tank, the time of flight in all directions will be the same, right? You get right. the signal and it's it travels in every direction the same because it's a crystal, it's a uniform material. If you have carbon fiber, in, in essence, the problem is that the way you laid your carbon fiber, the signal travels a lot faster along the fiber mm. than it travels against it. Right. So in order for us to know where the signal came from, we actually need to know the layup of the fibers as well. So oh, we need to know how the tank was fabricated so we can lay it over the signals that we actually get out of this. Okay, so there's two there's two parts of this I want to break down. One, which is the the time of flight triangulation. So just to kind of, because not everybody understands what that might mean. <laughs> yeah. So if you imagine um, like a tightrope, like a tightrope walker, okay. and there's like a, a line that's being hung between two points and you put a sensor on either side mm -hmm. of that tightrope and then someone plucks that tightrope at a random point along that tightrope and your sensors, if it's closer to one sensor than the other, it will get a signal from the plucking sooner mm -hmm. than the other one. And if you are measuring the time difference between them, you can tell where along the tightrope that plucking came. And so if you have 
these signals instead of one line if you imagine like a tank say like a gas tank you can put these signals the sensors all over in like a grid pattern and then you can tell the difference between where the if like there's a crack that appears it will reach each transducer at a different time depending on distance and from all that information you can work backwards to triangulate where that crack originated which is a fascinating way to, to work out where the crack begins mm-hmm. and then the other part is carbon fiber so uh, maybe not everybody knows what carbon fiber is or how it gets made and why the non-homogeneity is important so yeah Jonas maybe you can tell us a little bit about like what carbon fiber is and, and like how it gets put together and the challenges there of course. Uh, yeah. So carbon fiber is, we've probably seen it in a race car or you've heard about it in a hockey stick, actually. They are made mm-hmm. of carbon fiber. So carbon fiber is a very fiber reinforced materials are a very, very old concept. Actually, houses in Europe, for example, in the in the 1400s were built with clay reinforced with straw. Okay. So what you do is that you have a rather malleable, soft material uh, that works as what we call a matrix. So this is what covers mm-hmm. everything around it. And then you have what will be the load bearing part of this. So if you pull on it, that's what actually takes the force. It's not mm-hmm. the malleable material around it. So in old times, this was a straw. We need something stiffer. So people came up with the idea of carbon fibers. Carbon, as people might or might not know, has the strongest atomic bond because it has four electrons that can bond to each other. So you create really, really strong connections. Really so actually rip, ripping a carbon fiber is very, very tough. So people figured out how to create these in, in, in larger amounts. So they are very, very thin, 10 times the thinness of a human hair, actually, usually if you have wow. high quality versions. And those then get braided and used like fabric. You build fabric with it, like you build a t-shirt. And then mm. afterwards you go and, and reinforce that t-shirt, you infuse it with liquid resin it's a polymer like what you use in your 3d printer for example Hmm. or a couple of other applications that we have nowadays and then you harden that and so this works as the malleable part that can bend a little bit but still keeps all the fibers in place so that if you actually get strength on it and you pull on it the fibers actually take the load it's not the the matrix Hmm. and yeah this is the basic concept of of how it works that's really cool huh very interesting stuff Have you ever seen those lists on the internet that's like top five sandwich toppings, top five movies of the year, top five celebrities who have a very punchable face? You know what I'm talking about. The point is all these lists drive us crazy because we have no idea who made them and how they even narrowed down their top five list. That's where my podcast comes in. My name is Tung La and I am the host of Ranked. Top 5 lists of stuff that don't matter. In every episode, with the help of a motley crew of self-proclaimed experts, we debate, battle, and work together, showing you the entire process of how we got there to create a top 5 list of any and every topic we can think of, like top 5 brunch menu items, top 5 fictional dogs, top 5 90s songs, top 5 Steve's? The list goes on and on, and we will not rest till we rank basically everything. So join us every second Thursday in the pod cavern for ranked top five lists of stuff that don't matter top five top five top five so you you did some of the fabrication before you came to this final sticker do you want to talk about or can you talk about some fails what were some other potential designs you tried the type of material the shape that just sucked at their job oh very very many um so <laughs> Um, I'm I'm kind of lucky, so I did not invent the sensor itself. That has already been done for me. Mm-hmm. And what we do, especially compared to other kinds of these sensors, they're called CMUTs, capacitive ultrasonic transducer, micro-machined ultrasonic transducers. Ours are made out of polymer. So we also use an epoxy resin to build them, which mm-hmm. gives us better acoustic connection to the material because that's also a resin, right? So that it works better. So... The polysemuts were actually developed by my postdoc in the lab that uh, is still there. And God bless him, he had a way harder journey than I had. <laughs> so I started using the recipe that he developed and started to adapt it for it to work on carbon fiber. And it was a, it took me about a year just to learn how the recipe works. Wow. Because microfabrication is you take you take a wafer. A wafer is uh, a silicon crystal basically that is very very incredibly flat. It's the same thing that our computer chips are made of. Um, 
fun fact, if you blow up a silicon wafer to the size of Canada, you end up the highest point for the roughness is only about a meter tall. Okay. Wow. wow. Very flat. This is how this is how flat a wafer is. Yes. Wow. So we're only talking about a couple of atoms in 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 difference um, in in a wafer. So we take these as a substrate and then we start building on them. We start spinning different polymers. We start layering our metal on top. And the problem is in microfabrication, you can only do one layer at a time and you start building them on top of each other. Like every layer printer. has its like a 3D printer. Yes, it's our process is an additive process. It's basically a 3D printer. We actually print uh, because we do photolithography. So we use we use those resins. They are uh, highly UV reactive. So we use these resins. We coat the wafer with them at a specific thickness. We expose them to UV light and the parts that have not been exposed or that have been exposed, depending on the type, can then be washed away. Hmm. And so this is how we create pattern after pattern. The problem is every photoresist works with different temperatures, different exposure nodes. Uh, some photoresists don't work well with whatever edges the other photoresist. Hmm. Uh, oh my goodness. Very problematic metals. Uh, I had in the very beginning a point where I used aluminum for my electrodes, oh, which is very mistake. cheap. Big it's nice to use it. <laughs> the problem was that my photoresist, what I used to etch it, eats aluminum. Uh, I didn't realize that. So uh, I put it under a microscope, looked at it, and then, then my postdoc st standing in the back was like, um, the electrodes are missing. <laughs> what happens? I was like, yeah, those were eaten away in about two seconds, uh, and, then wow. they, and then they were gone, right? Uh, so just figuring out how many layers you can combine and what you can do, it, it really took a long time. And a clean room is, it's interesting. Uh, it's not the most pleasant place to work at most of yeah. the time. You have to Tell imagine the cleaner is. You need to completely dress up because yes. thinking about it, a dust particle is larger than the features we put on the wafer. Wow. So every single dust particle you put in there completely destroys your wafer. There's wow. most of the time not a chance to actually clean it up. If something lands on it, you're done. You can just toss the wafer. You just wasted a lot of time and a lot of money as well. Those are very expensive. Like an asteroid hitting the planet. It's Yeah, literally it's like an asteroid hitting the planet. Uh, so very, very problematic. So what you have to do is you first wear a couple of plastic sleeves over your shoes. Then you wear a hairnet. In my case, well, the listeners can't see me, but I have quite a substantial beard in my face. You have to wear a beard cover. Uh, then you wear a hood, which is a, a blue fabric, which is not very breathable. Yeah. You put a full suit on that you need to close. Then you put an additional set of shoes over that suit, wow. close those. Then you put a face wheel in front of your face again, fabric, not very breathable. And then you put gloves on that you can or cannot do it. Some clean rooms do it. They tape them shut. We don't. Wow. It's enough for us to take them on. And then you have to pee, and, and then you have to undo the whole thing. Exactly. So if you if, if you have a bad day and you had a few coffees too many, as all of us scientists know with a drill, uh, you're running in and out of the clean room quite a lot. Uh, keep in mind that, well, for an untrained person, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to get dressed. Um, yeah. After four years, I'm quite a bit faster, but it's still a big nuisance if you have to do it. And, and clean rooms are also generally kept under negative pressure. Which means that yeah. there's an airflow that's constantly going outward from the room. Positive pressure. Oh, positive pressure. Yes, sorry. That's yes. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yes, right. positive positive pressure, which is it's not too bad. Uh, the way bigger problem, because I told you earlier, we use UV light to expose yeah. the photoresists, right? So white light has quite the big part of UV light in it. <sighs> so what we do is all of our work happens in yellow light. It's specific yellow light that has a very narrow huh. wavelength so that your, your photoresists don't get exposed and your wafer is not damaged. Oh, a big problem there is that the human body uses UV light to create vitamin D and to recognize that it's daylight oh, no. and recognize that we should be fit and healthy. If UV light's missing, well, you try to go to sleep. So ah. an eight-hour day in the clean room, if you walk out afterwards and it's still sunlight, that can feel like you stepped out of another world. It's oh. a very, very, very strange experience. That's so interesting. Especially on a long day. Uh, must so, mess yeah. with your circadian rhythm and everything, yeah. Yeah, I, like I actually literally in the winter, if I do too much fabrication and you have short days, I'm in Vancouver, so I mean, we get yeah. short days in the winter as well. It can happen that you walk into the clean room 
the only time you see the sun is lunch. And then when you come out, you don't have sunlight anymore. So I really have to take vitamin D supplements to not fall wow. asleep. Wow. Amazing. That's fascinating. So, wow. uh, the hazards of the fabrication yeah. engineer. It is very interesting, yes. It's still fun, though. It is very fun and rewarding at <laughs> work. As everyone runs away from this field. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Jonas, how would you test, how are you testing your sensors day to day? I imagine you don't have a giant fuel tank, or you said these things can be used on other things. Like, how are you, how are you testing these? And what was your sort of threshold for success? Do you just have a certain amount of time to try out a bunch of stuff and whoever was the best was the winner? Or are you like... This is this is the accuracy I would need for it to be in that voice a good enough transducer, and you you got to that point. So you're gonna love this because first it's gonna sound very sciency, and then it's gonna sound very rudimentary. <laughs> so the Can't way wait. we usually test if they are working is that we use something that is called a laser Doppler vibrometer. Ooh. Fancy words, and in the in the end, you need a, you shine a laser onto your membrane. You activate it to start moving because we can also activate them, not just listen to them. And then you just measure if it's actually moving and at what frequency. If it has the frequency that we want uh, and it has the movement amount that we want, that is the first test passed. Then we do a bunch of electrical measurements to them, uh, what the resistance is, the capacitance, and a bunch of other stuff that goes way too deep. But basically, this is it. And then we do what is the least scientific part in this entire process. Um, we need to test if they can actually listen to acoustic emissions and we need to quantify this. So these little cracks forming and the ultrasound that they send are called acoustic emissions. So the standard test that has come up in the industry over the last 30 oh, years is that we glue the sensor onto the surface, in our case, carbon fiber, and then a certain distance away, we take a mechanical pencil. We push out the pencil at by three millimeters. Whoa. And then we hold the pencil at a 30 degree angle to the, sur the surface. And then we just break the tip. <laughs> that... That's the scientific process. Wow. That is the scientific process, yes. When you said mechanical pencil, I thought it was like the click sound. But it was so much better. <laughs> no. There was a certain it's, length. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Which, which makes it even even weirder, right? Um, yeah, no, this is, this is what we use because it's a good approximation to what an acoustic emission sounds like. And the fun thing is you would you would think that it's the it's the pencil that's snapping that actually creates the sound, which is what but I thought. it isn't. <gasps> no, it isn't. So the, the, the sharp edge of the pencil that presses onto the resin and forms a little dent in the resin. Oh. And the second the lead breaks, that dent snaps back up in full force oh. and that snapping back up is actually what creates the sound Whoa. it's not the pencil breaking that's wild you're blowing my mind yeah that's uh, amazing to make to make sure we get this right in our tests we're using a 0.7 millimeter or 0.5 those are the standards for human pencils are these different pencils in the Please, please don't quote me on this because I did forget it, but I think it's a 0.7 HB hardness nice. from Faber-Castell. Faber okay, it has to be that, from uh, that standard. So, wow. Yes. That's amazingly specific. It's like a, a pop star's writer, yeah. you know, no brown smarties. Someone's, someone somewhere was like, what are we going to do to standardize this? We have to be make this reproducible. It's like, I've got it. You know that mechanical pencil I've got? Here's what we're going to do. The, the runner-up was a bubble popping in bubblicious strawberry flavor <laughs> bubble gum when it's been blown to a 10-centimeter radius bubble. But it's amazing that it's the dent that rebounds that makes the sound. I love that part. It's crazy, right? But, but you know how there's many different weird topics for PhD thesis? <laughs> so there is actually a PhD thesis from, uh, from uh, oh a goodness. now he's a professor at the university in Augsburg and he's working on this. But his PhD thesis was simulating and standardizing those pencil lead break tests. So he spent <laughs> an entire PhD on quantifying where that actually comes from, how it works and how, how it goes. Professor I think pencil. it's a PhD thesis or it's a very long paper. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure anymore, but it's one of those two. So it just blows your mind That's how much work goes in there, right? Incredible. I want to read that, Professor Pencil. Yeah, yeah. I hope he got sponsored by the pencil lead <laughs> company. 
His name is uh, <laughs> Professor Marcus Sousler, if somebody wants to look him up. Very, very nice. fascinating career. Very cool. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So what are some other uses of these transducers? We've talked a lot about hydrogen tanks, but what else do you, have they been used for or do you think they could be used for? No, they actually have been used for a lot of different things. So I'm kind of the outlier in our lab. Uh, in our research group because everybody else has been focused on medical research oh. uh, they of course work like a standard ultrasound imaging machine mm. that you have in the hospital potential benefits are that they are very energy efficient and very small and very easy to fabricate so they are cheap hmm. uh, or inexpensive people don't like saying the word cheap no. uh, i've <laughs> corrected way too many times by the professors on that one so they're very inexpensive and very energy efficient meaning you can start putting them into handheld variables so ultrasound does not need to have this massive machine anymore that you know from the doctors yeah. but rather you can just go and, and have something that plugs into your phone and you start using it so it's, mm. it's very convenient in that. And uh, this is what half of the lab's working on. Hmm. My project also does a bit of imaging. Uh, we are imaging welding, for example. We hmm. are checking for delaminations. So when different layers of composites start to separate, for example, the the fibers don't hold together anymore and start, start bouncing away, we can detect that and see that. And also during fabrication. So when, when you start building carbon fiber composites, uh, we monitor the hardening of the resin. We try to see how the resin flows into the, <laughs> into the composite and a bunch of things like this. So it's, it's a really broad field. We always joking, we have a billion ideas, but only very little money and even <laughs> less hours a day. Right. So, That's always you know the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Jonas, you, you've you've promised in writing that this is your final year in your PhD. Do you have? <laughs> do you know what you want to do next? Um, yes, I already uh, signed on to stay as a postdoc. Nice. Yeah. Very very crazy. No, I um, I'm gonna stick around as a postdoc um, right. because I want to see a bit of the project further through, and I also want to. We kind of want to see where this all goes um, mm -hmm. because it is very promising, and, and we'll see something maybe comes out of it at the end. Yeah. Um, if not, I'm still fairly fairly young, not yeah. too young, but uh, so I'll I'll try to uh, to see where it goes and then that's so cool yeah maybe find yeah. something different if it and then how out. did you end up here end up in this materials lab doing this engineering uh whereas before it wasn't doesn't sound like it was something that you were doing no it is it's a very very interesting story as well so um we have a professor or i had a professor at the university of stuttgart he's still teaching there and uh, he is one of the directors of the German Aerospace Center. So it's basically Whoa. the equivalent of NASA in Germany. Mm -hmm. And they have a very tight cooperation with the University of British Columbia, a couple of labs, they do a bit of research. So in the lecture it was about the end of my master's. I hadn't done a semester abroad or anything. I was going straight through the ranks and didn't want to do it really because I always felt that I need to do a little bit of work and also money was tight as always mm -hmm. as a student. And uh, at the end he asked, Hey, who wants to go to Canada to write their master thesis? <laughs> I was like, well, I, I speak English. I'm interested. I trust that I can write the thesis in English. Here we go. So I just raised my hand. I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to go. Turns out that the project that he had in mind for me actually didn't come together, but oh. a couple of weeks prior, he had read a, a LinkedIn post from my now professor that was talking oh. about those sensors in the wow. medical field huh. and he just put one and one together and was like well we could use these for acoustic emission sensing we could use Amazing. these non-destructive testing why not why don't you go and check it and he told me they are already you can you can check it keep in mind in germany a master thesis is six months it's not two years like in canada oh. Oh, it's wow. a six months project yes okay so he sent me over to Canada. I was like, in six months, you're going to come back and you tell me if this works or not. <laughs> you write your thesis as kind of feasibility study. So how it goes, the professors talk to each other. They send me over and then you arrived and you talk to the postdoc. And I was like, there's no working sensor right now. So we first need to come up with something. The well, we have to we make had. the sensor. <laughs> the prototypes we had are all destroyed in testing. Fabrication takes a while. We had a bit of problems. So... Well, there you go, figured out. And uh, well, misled by LinkedIn. <laughs> it was a very, very interesting challenge, but we did figure it out and we did make it work. And wow. uh, with, the, with a lot months. of help. 
Not in six months. It, no, it, it happened in six months. We oh, were able okay. to do the feasibility study to Amazing. that these are applicable within six months. And it's a lot of thanks to the lab. My The postdoc, uh, also the professors, very, very big thanks to all of them. Without them, it, it couldn't have been possible. Neither wow. the PhD now in the, in the four years. Um, so we actually managed to do that. And on the way, uh, the professor asked me if I wanted to stay on as a, mm -hmm. as a PhD student and continue investigating this. And... I actually, before I left, I said, I never, ever want to go to university. I, it's, <laughs> I hated university in, in, in back home. It was so wow. unorganized and I didn't, I just didn't like it. I already worked during my master's <laughs> and I knew work, work was going to be easier for me. Industry sure. was, was the way to go. And yeah, then uh, Edmund came around, my now professor and, and asked about it. And uh, yeah, I fell in love with Vancouver. It's a really nice city, really mm -hmm. nice area. I fell in love with the project and I already saw that this has great potential. So he uh, convinced me to stay on and, and, and see it through. And that's what happened cool. out of the six months developed a, a four year thesis that basically still working on the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but so many like chance things had to yeah. happen there. And it, it seemed like maybe it was a, a fail at first, but it, you turned it, turned it into gold or at mm -hmm. least carbon fiber. <laughs> now you mentioned you did your your bachelor's your master's in aerospace engineering you say you're passionate about aerospace why aerospace Jonas what made you passionate about space in the aero variety so I I mean aerospace is 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 the passion for sure but I'm I'm all, I've always been passionate about everything mechanical I huh. I started taking things apart when I was very young mm -hmm. um I I have a very, very good memory of machines. So mm. I've had a job about 10 years ago. I'm fairly sure I can still draw you the plans of most of the machines. Okay, that I wow. wow. It's, it's, it's very, very into this. And so for me, it was either interesting, very large. So I was uh, applying for, sh for actually shipbuilding at, hmm. at, okay. when I got out of high school. Shipbuilding or aerospace, those were the two options. Because aerospace was complicated. It was high-end materials. It was mm. crazy to do what they do. And yeah, I ended up in aerospace. Uh, in the meantime, the love for it only grew. So um, I'm reading every material. Every time a helicopter flies over my head, I have to look up. Girlfriend's getting quite annoyed because every time I have to stop and tell her what it is. Um, Hang on, let's check out this helicopter. All right, okay. Pretty much. I think every single friend that I have that has went to a museum with me about mechanics has always regretted it because I will not <laughs> shut up from the time we arrive till the time we leave. And usually that's when about the museum opens to when it closes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's how it went. Uh, wow. I mean, the studies itself, the undergrad, it was hard. It was really hard. I'm not sure. going to lie. It was, uh, Stuttgart was, was, was really hard. And it wasn't too much fun. It really mm. only became fun to study when I got into my master's. We suddenly could choose a lot more hmm. courses. We had really, right. really interesting professors, former astronauts that, that taught us. Uh, so wow. very, very interesting, cool stuff. And, uh, and yeah, that, so the bachelor's was something to survive so you could get to the good part. <laughs> right. It's so funny that there's so many parts to this learning journey yeah. of like sitting in classes, doing things, making connections. All of that has to kind of like fall in place. And there's so many parts of it you're like, where people are like, I don't want to do this. And then they just leave before getting to the part that they maybe would like. But it's not everybody can kind of find the thing that they love and feel like, oh, the, the next step I don't want to do or this step I don't want to continue doing. Uh, but it's great that you found the thing that you're really passionate about and, and got to that point. That's really cool. Yeah, I love it. It's it's I kind of took a, a turn in the other direction, but microfabrication is still very complicated. So I'm, I'm still fine there. I feel <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, Jonas, I think we're out of time. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show, especially at the time it is for you. Um, your research sounds super cool. We yeah. can't wait to read all about these transducers in our next Air Canada plane. Well, hopefully they will install them at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to fly the hydrogen skies. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, so Thank you yeah. It was great. Oh, that was amazing. How cool is that? I, I knew this would be an exciting one for, for, well, I mean, it's very exciting for me, but these are words that you know better than me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, instrumentation, measurement technology, all of this, that time scale, the measurements, the mm -hmm. materials, all of these things, the fabrication, mm. all of this stuff that has to go into it. It's so complicated. It's so intricate. And yeah, there's people who love that kind of stuff uh, can really nerd out about it. Uh, you know, someone has to be passionate about carbon fiber and, and transducers and, and making them and 
and now we have applications for them like storing hydrogen gas i didn't know that it was complicated well carbon fiber is so hot right now i see it coming up on kickstarter for wallets and all sorts of things <laughs> i mean now yeah it, i remember first hearing about carbon fiber ages ago i mean like it's the the material of the future and yeah now i liked it before it, it was cool yeah yeah the hipster of carbon fibers. But now it is. It's it's getting more and more commonplace. Well, we learned a lot today. Yeah, we did. We learned a lot about attoseconds and our latest Nobel uh, Award winners in physics. And we learned about hippo mouths and uh, how they digest things. And they and remain chew. so hungry, hungry. Yes. And, of course, we learned a lot about... Uh, Fabricating trans- transducers. Transducers from Jonas. Very well, cool. Vinny, you want to send people out on our socials? Yeah. If you'd like to follow us, check us out at LRG Pod on Facebook, YouTube, TikTok... <laughs> Let me start that over again. <laughs> you too. My brain froze like, wait, it's not that on YouTube. If you'd like to follow us, check us out at LRG Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also YouTube. You can check out TikTok. Our, 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 did I not say TikTok? No. <sighs> Take seven. If you'd like to follow us, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And on our YouTube channel, you can just look up Learn Real Good, where we share our science facts. And if you or you know somebody who would like to be a guest, send them to us by email, learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's learnrealgoodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you love our podcast, please tell a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Phone a friend. Phone a friend. Let them know that there's this fun, silly (laughs) podcast about science. And give us a five-star rating if you think it earned it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel weird asking for five-star No, star even rating. if it didn't. Even no if cares. you didn't think it earned it. Yeah, Just yeah, give yeah. us five yeah, stars because right. we're asking. And a nicely. written review would be great. Yeah. To date, we have one. We get hundreds of downloads each episode. Yeah, yeah. But no one's indicating People that. are too busy laughing. Ah, They're having such a good time. It. I get it. Yeah. Um, that's it for our that's season. It. Thank you. That's it for our season. I'm going to cry. Yeah, Thank can you. we say a shout out to Podcavern for hosting us? And, of and course. Tom for being so cool uh, and, and putting up with us in our silly <laughs> little podcast. Great job, everybody. Thanks to all our guests this season. Thank you to all our guests. Thank you to every one of our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate you all. Thank you, Vinny. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Jonas. And we'll see you next season. Next see season. You see you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> like you fell into the mouth of a yeah. hippo. <laughs>